As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. That is part three of our 2023 outfield preview. We will try and get through the end of this position on this episode. I'm almost certain we will leave someone out because there are far more outfielders to cover than we have time to cover once you get past like pick 300. So if you got questions for a future episode, email is the best way. Rates and Barrels at theathletic.com. You can always tweet at us. We can try and answer questions in that forum as well. You know, yesterday, we left off right at the back of the top 200 overall. Riley Green is the first player right now among outfielders who currently misses the cut. And I started thinking about Riley Green in the context of other recent rookies, most specifically Jared Kelnick and Dylan Carlson, I think because they're... There's a little bit of a gap between Riley Green and some of the expectations people had for Julio Rodriguez and other positions, Bobby Witt Jr., even though Rodriguez was pretty affordable last year. Green's in a spot where it's not going to hurt you to draft him if you're wrong, but should Jared Kelnick and Dylan Carlson be instructive in this case as guys that we thought were really polished that are taking more time than expected to become consistently viable fantasy contributors yeah there's actually kind of an interesting continuum between the three because you've got jared kelnick who has wicked contact problems and specific holes in the zone breaking balls low or or an issue for him and then you've got um riley green who's the third one again was uh dylan carlson dylan dylan carlson dylan carlson has a great plate approach you know contact rate is great no bad ball oomph at all Kelnick has pretty good batted ball oomph, and I think Riley's in between. I was almost on a Riley no draft. You might have heard in the last episode that um, I was picking people pretty willy-nilly over Riley um, and that uh, I, I wasn't super into him. But I've looked a little closer, and it's not as bad as I thought. I the strikeout rate is bad, but a 9.8% swing strike rate suggests that he could actually bring that down. The projections are he's going to bring that down. If he brings it down to 25, 26, major league average, you kind of have to recalibrate a bit. Major league average is approaching 23, you know? So all of a sudden, it's just a slightly worse strikeout rate than usual and not like a really terrible one. And, you know, Dylan Carlson has like... I don't know, like, I'm not looking right now, but like a 3% barrel rate or something. It's awful batted ball stats. Dylan Carlson had a 9% barrel rate last year, 112 max EV. So the raw power is there. Uh, You know, I'm not saying that he's, you know, the projections are only for below average power. But he showed good power in the minor leagues. And the underlying sort of process stats aren't as bad as his results. Um... I don't know where the seven stolen bases are coming from, honestly. That seems to be reaching uh, back all the way to 2021 double A, where he, he stole 12 ba- bags. Um, but in terms of a late guy that could have some power upside, 
Um, I think I pick Riley out of the three. Yeah, I think there's enough things he does well. The stolen bases, he was 21 for 22 in his first two minor league seasons. That was 2019 and 2021 combined across a bunch of levels. Um, and then had an injury, of course, that cost him time, delayed his arrival last year with Detroit, um, stole a few bases in the minors during his time at AAA, and then was one for five in limited opportunities with the Tigers. I don't know if that's enough to say he's getting red lights, but I think it's a good reminder that when you look at the the tools, this is a guy that Riley Green got a 40 speed grade from fan yeah, right? right? So yeah. <laughs> I think the lesson is don't expect more than low double-digit steals if you're going to be optimistic about him. And don't be surprised yeah. if it takes a little time for him to pick his spots and start doing that. I'm not going to faith cast him into 10 even. No, no need to do that. But I think it's a little bit like what we were talking about with Brian Reynolds, where Reynolds' line is very good in the context of last year. Riley Green hit a 253 321, 362 line. That was a 98 WRC plus. That was almost, almost league, league average. average. It's still jarring months and months after we first started <laughs> seeing this run environment. You're like, that really? Can we check that math again? But for his age, for the fact that he had that delayed start to the season because of the injury, uh, I think Riley Green's rookie season was actually borderline successful. I think that's kind of a reasonable expectation. So even a small step forward would make him a decent value here. He also has uh, uh, something that you can watch that becomes useful early on. Ground ball rate is something that um, stabilizes early for hitters. He had a too high ground ball rate last year, but lower numbers in the minor leagues. So if you draft him and he's piddling along with a 250, hasn't hit a homer yet, and you don't know what to do with him on your roster, uh, you can look at his ground ball rate. And if it's over 50%, maybe it's just not going to be his year. Uh, if it's under 50%, I hate to make it so binary, but if it's under 50%, it's closer to where he was in the minors when he showed better power. So, um, that's something it's nice to have that like late, you know, sixth, what is it? What are we in now? Fifth outfielder, at least, at least fourth. If yeah, fourth. If not fifth, depending on how, how you're playing. I'd rather, it up to this point. I'd rather pick him, uh, as a six outfielder, but if it's my fifth outfielder and he's part of a package of players that I hope become my fifth outfielder every day. Um, and he's on my bench or in the early going and, and, you know, hitting 55% ground balls, I'm going to let him go. The nice, uh, one nice aspect to his, uh, candidacy is that Detroit did change the walls and, uh, they brought the walls down uh, almost, um, through most of the park to seven feet. Uh, it's kind of a home run robbing, uh, height, uh, but it also will allow more homers out. They also brought the walls in, in, uh, in center. So it's going to play a little bit more fair. Uh, and that's going to help Riley Green. So uh, there's a couple reasons to draft him. Uh, I wouldn't want him as my fourth outfielder. And, um, you know, as my fifth, I'd want him as a package of players. I wouldn't want, I would want an outfielder on my bench behind him. You know, like I'd want him to be part of two or three players that I thought could help me. Um, you know, Alex Verdugo goes right behind him. And Alex Verdugo has a much higher floor. Um, and I know it's, uh, it's not very power friendly, but in a league where the batting average just keeps dropping every year, uh, I see Alex Verdugo as a, a great pick for a fourth or fifth outfielder, uh, almost a virtual lock to hit 280 plus, you know, could hit 300. Um, and I don't think 11 to 15 homers is as much of a zero as we might uh, think it is in our heads. So um, Verdugo is somebody I'd, I think I'd much rather have, especially if it's like for my fourth outfielder. Yeah, I believe it was our friend Ariel Cohen who was saying that going into last season, Verdugo was on the short list of players that actually projected to have a positive impact in all five roto categories. Hard to find guys that are that balanced. Maybe he narrowly took misses a step, that now. Took but, a step back with the speed, it looks like. But the general idea of what he still could be with a step forward, I think it's still there and the small the step down was pretty small relatively the speed yeah, was always still a little hit 280 you know he still hit 280 and was above average probably and runs an rbi or around average i mean he went from being above average in all categories to being close to average you know yeah probably didn't hurt you where he went so i think he makes sense as a similar kind of player here he's a guy that you can trust the playing time with a bit more i've uh, kind of sandwiched between green and verdugo joey Manessis, who also has first base eligibility so you might find that 
you like him as a corner, but flexibility is nice. Good for draft champions, you know. Yeah, initially when I when I saw Joey Manessis come up and have that late season success, I thought this is Frank Schwindel. And the more I've looked at him, the less I actually believe that that comp holds up. I think Manessis is better. I think there is more evidence of consistent power from him, even though he's been very old for the level in the upper levels, the minor leagues, mostly playing at AAA since 2018. I think there's a better chance Manessis sticks in an everyday role with the Nationals all season than there was for Schwindel to stick in an everyday role for the Cubs a year ago. It doesn't mean he won't lose his job. It just means I think these core skills are probably better than I was giving them credit for initially when I first started looking at the profile. Yeah, he hits the ball harder than Schwindel ever did. And the team is maybe even more of a mess than the Cubs ever was ever were. And thirdly, the park is nicer to power than uh, Chicago's. So I, I could see it. It's a little bit like that uh, Jake McCarthy situation where there is the risk that he doesn't play. However, you know, if there is anything more actionable, we've been talking about having players that are on that in that, that fifth outfield or bench spot, having players that you can pick that you know what you're looking for, you know how to drop them early. It's super easy with Manessis, right? The playing time guys are actually kind of one of the best ways to put guys on your bench. If he's playing, well, he's probably going to be good. If he's not playing, I know I can drop him in week two. The small move they made, they added Corey Dickerson to the mix. And Dickerson's a lefty. Manessis is a righty. They've also added Dominic Smith, who can play some first base. So they've got a couple guys in there that can take big side platoon roles, even with both of them. Manessis does have a spot atop the depth chart right now at DH. And even with those additions, Lane Thomas has a spot. So it's like Manessis versus himself versus Lane Thomas versus those guys. And then um, kind of fourth, fifth outfielder types from a major league perspective, like Alex Call and Stone Garrett. It's not it's not an intimidating group of players trying to take away that time. There are Jake Alou backers. Uh, we and we we discussed Jake Alou back in the review portion, even even though he was much better discussed in the preview portion. He's kind of missing a glove, uh, but in terms of making contact, showing decent amount of patience, showing a decent amount of power and speed, Jake Alou is fairly exciting. I know Fangraphs puts a forty future value on him, but it's a little bit about the fact that he doesn't really have a glove. Fantasy only cares about the glove to the extent that will he play. And now that the DH is ubiquitous in the league, I feel like Alou uh, has a place to land no matter what if he hits. Um, you know, second base, probably I would try Jake Alou at second base first because I'm not that much of a Luis Garcia backer. Uh, I don't know that Vargas is any good. Um, and, and so I'd try him there. But, uh, you know, DH is a place they, they may bring him up to play. Um, may play him in the outfield. Uh, this is a, a depth chart that is going to change. You know, this oh, is yeah. a depth chart that's, that's in upheaval. Um, and that makes uh, for a lot of opportunity. I always love going to bad teams and being like, ooh, this is the guy I believe in. Um, I think Manessas is actually one of the guys I believe in, you know, in this group. Um, I think Candelario will bounce back, and I think he's better than Keyboom and, you know, the most natural third baseman. So Candelario and Manessis are a little bit old, but they're the maybe the best players on this team. <laughs> like, honestly, like best hitters, I think. Um, Abrams can't hit the ball hard. Luis Garcia never walks. Uh, that becomes a problem over time. Um, Lane Thomas is pretty decent, but he's also doesn't have much ceiling. Um, and, uh, Victor Robles is, is, is playing his way out of ball as I see it. Um, and then Stone Garrett is a threat to any, any of the outfielders if they just decide to give him full time. Dickerson's a weird sign for me. He's a, a bad ball hitter, uh, who's 33 and, uh, hasn't been above average with the bat for three years. Isn't really that much of a, uh, of an asset with the glove. Um, I didn't, uh, I, I wouldn't bet on him. Uh, you mentioned being interested in digging through bad teams' rosters. This is a, a great spot to do it, this cluster in terms of ADP. 
Uh, for those wondering, Whit Merrifield will be discussed on the second base preview because second base is a dumpster fire, and you're going to want to play him at second base. Right. If you end up drafting him this year, play him in the middle infield. The A's have several outfielders here. Seth Brown is in this range, does have first base eligibility to go with it. Ramon Laureano, who I like quite a bit. And just a little further down, about 20 to 30 picks later, is Esturi Ruiz, who's been discussed on this show quite a bit. So when you start looking at how the pieces fit in Oakland and you look at what these guys have done over the brief time, in the case of Ruiz, they've been in the big leagues and the longer times they've been in the big leagues for Laureano and Seth Brown, how do you see them kind of holding their jobs or being utilized by the A's? Are they all pretty clear to max volume playing time? I guess so. Seth Brown was already in trade rumors. <laughs> it seems pretty quick uh, to uh, <laughs> playing your way out of Oakland. <laughs> like he had one good year. Um, the DH situation is is fairly unsettled. We've got Noda there, uh, who is I think a Rule Five or just like a waiver pickup. Uh, you know, and he's been interesting, but uh, he's been interesting for so long that he's twenty six years old. And uh, gives me sometimes the sort of Kyle Kalua vi- vibes where it's, um, it's a blast from the past. Well, just like really high walks. Is the contact going to be there? Is the power for real? He's maybe a little bit more of an athlete because he's, he's stealing these bases. Um, I don't know. Do you, I mean, he definitely is somebody that will get a chance. Uh, where is he eligible to eligible at outfield? Noda. Yeah, mm, I think question. he's more of a deep, deeply guy. Yeah, I've seen him on the the depth chart at at first a bunch of places. The, I think yeah. it's Brown at first, Noda at DH, Loriano starts all the time. Um, I think Pache is in the minor leagues. Ruiz starts at center. Uh, Kemp is on his way out, uh, but I think he's the starter at second. And Capel, somebody I like pretty well. He's in in left field. He's he's maybe one of the super cheapest guys we talked about that I think, you know, has a, a good set of skills where he makes contact, has patience, enough power, enough defense. I think he's going to be the surprise guy who plays a lot in that outfield. So if if Capel plays, Ruiz is going to play because he's the star acquisition. Loriano is playing to probably a crew trade value, but he's also the the the, the veteran. So that's, I think it, it might be actually fairly uh, predictable in the outfield. Those three play most of the time. Brown at first, Noda at DH. Noda the, has the most collapse percentage. So there's some opportunity for, uh, is it Dermis Garcia? Um, you know, jun- is it Junior Diaz? What's uh, Diaz? Jordan Diaz is my Jordan guy. He's, he's gonna, yeah. he, look, he didn't hit the ball hard in the little time we saw him last year. But it's, it's, he's going to get a chance, though. And I think he'll get the chance at third. He didn't look that great defensively at second. So he could get the chance uh, at first behind a Seth Brown trade, at DH if, if Noda doesn't work out, or at third. They've got Jace Peterson there. To me, Jace Peterson uh, profiles as a uh, utility guy. I mean, he's 32. Uh, he's had one season where he's been above average with the bat, and that was uh, a 61 plate appearance season. Um, so I, I think he's more of a uh, of a utility guy that uh, shores up your defense. May play short if they end up sending uh, their shortstop down. Who Nick Allen is a good defender, but uh, offensively he was thirty nine percent worse than league average last year. Yeah. So of all these players you mentioned, I think Loriano has the safest floor i would say of the bunch like with brown the bottom could fall out on him or he could get traded and then he gets traded i don't know if he's an everyday player on other teams he is an everyday player so long as he's in oakland ruiz is so polarizing and i'm glad we've got more projections coming out now because when we first started talking about him steamer is a little more optimistic about history ruiz but they're, he's, they're optimistic about young guys forever <laughs> right and the bad x has history ruiz at 228 291 343 and that's an 87 wrc plus i was like that's where i was expecting more than that because of the run environment but no 87 wrc plus 23 steals and that's over basically two-thirds of a season's worth of playing time so really 30 plus steal sort of speed is what he brings but is Ruiz going to end up being a one-category player 
against big league pitching because of the quality of the contact that he makes. I kind of think he is. Uh, if you look closely, you know, you, you could say, oh, he walks. And that's a big differentiator between Stephen Kwan and all of the guys that have come before Stephen Kwan that had like a 3% uh, walk rate and a 10% strikeout rate. You know what I mean? Like the fact that Stephen Kwan also walks makes him much more valuable. You look at Ruiz's line and you say, whoa, you know, double A AA and triple A last year, he walked 14% of the time and struck out 17% of the time. That's really, really exciting. If you look beyond that to other stops in the minor leagues, he didn't have that walk rate. There might be something about him moving closer to the plate because his hit, hit by pitches uh, rate spiked. But with a one-year spike in walk rate, I can't just I can't say that he's going to come out here and be an asset when it comes to taking walks, especially since I don't believe in the batted ball power. We've seen some minor league batted ball numbers, something like an eighteen percent hard hit rate. So hitters, pitchers aren't going to be afraid of that. They're going to stay in the zone. It's not going to be. He's not going to get much value out of um, not swinging, right? And so he's going to be aggressive. And so I believe the 6% walk rate from the bad X much more than the 8% walk rate from Steamer. And uh, and then if the same thing happens if you look at the strikeout rate. Yes, he struck out 17% of the time last year in AA. Uh, but if you look beyond that, he had way worse contact rates uh, on the way up. So I also believe that 24% strikeout rate from the bat. If you take a guy who has a 6% walk rate, 24% strikeout rate, and really bad batted ball quality, you're talking about... Victor Robles. And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I'm not that. doing that anymore. <laughs> I've kicked that habit. That's for everyone else. So yeah, you keep keep the tweets coming when when Vic runs into his first home run of the season on June 22nd. That's fine. You can tweet at me. I get a good chuckle out of that. But um, yeah, that I man, mean, if, if he's Ruiz, not on the rundown. If Ruiz hits 15 homers this year and has a 330 OBP, man, please make me eat crow. Oh, but that see, he'll do it. He'll, maybe he'll do it one time. He'll do the one Victor <laughs> Robles season, and everybody else can have their dum dum year or years where they believe. So tread very carefully here. I think what it is, it's more of a desperation play for speed, right? You're building your foundation. Maybe you have everything else in good shape. You got your closers already. Like, you got crap. plenty of pitching. You got power. <laughs> and you're like, I need speed. You're cut in this range. It's like Estrella Ruiz could be the 30 plus steel guy that, that bails you out or he's not eligible in the outfield or John Birdie is available later. So if you're in that situation, are you more likely to throw that dart at Ruiz or are you more likely to throw that dart at John Birdie? I could also see, you know, this could be a real go-go uh, A's team. You're talking about, you know, if they do start like Loriano, Pache, Ruiz in the outfield, even Capelkins run, they could just really be a running team. That's, um, to me, it, like, to me it's crazy that Ramon Loriano and Estuary Ruiz are close to in, in ADP. Uh, <laughs> I will take Ramon Loriano every day of the week, and yes, he might not get you 44 stolen bases, uh, but if he's trying to run his way out of Oakland, and and honestly, I talk to him a lot. He is <laughs> trying to caffeinate himself out of Oakland too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Remember that last year? I was like, man, there's nobody here. He's like, I know. I'm getting into caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd get along really well with Ramon Laureano. He's pretty funny. I like him, but uh, but I think he'll he'll do whatever it takes to get noticed by the rest of baseball. I could see him. Uh, stealing a lot of bags this year. So I'd much rather. And then Loriano's just a better hitter. Um, I just believe his power way more. Yeah. Um, he has some of the typical flaws you find for players in this range. Strikes out a little too much, doesn't walk yeah, as much as you'd like him to. But the combination of power and speed is real. It's supported by that barrel rate. 10.3% barrel rate for his career. He hits mm -hmm. the ball hard in the right angles enough to get to that power consistently and is on a bad enough team to run as much as he wants to run. Therefore, you're getting really good value. Maybe maybe a 2015 season is coming. He's definitely on my radar. I think he's a good value in this range. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Some other players that go around this cluster. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Big power outage last year. Had a wrist injury. Now he goes to Arizona. It's not very good for power. It's not a, he didn't he didn't go somewhere that's going to be uh, that's going to help his power, you know. Yeah, I think we were talking to Caitlin McGrath, our Blue Jays writer during one of the 3-0 shows and she had suggested that he was trying to hit more like his brother Yuli. Like that was part of his the conscious approach change. The injury made it really hard to to know like did he did he just go too far or was he just unable to hit for some power while also, you know, putting the ball in play more often. But yeah, you look at the park differences, it's not it's not good. I think it's home runs in particular where he's going to lose something in that park cuz Chase Field ever since they put the humidor in has played either neutral or even a little pitcher friendly. It's pitcher friendly, yeah. Yeah, would, so I it's would guess it's pitcher friendly. Just over a watching th- a lot of games there. Three year window for right handed hitters. It's got a park factor of eighty from Statcast for homers. That is not what you're looking for. So even if you get some power back, the the power bounce back from Guriel is probably going to be pretty modest. Yeah, and you know there we've got two sort of. Very similar cases, and I know I already sort of professed my love for Andrew Benintendi in the last episode, but, um, you know, we got two similar cases with Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Andrew Benintendi in terms of one-year power disappearals. Disappearals? Whatever. Power Um, losses? We tried losses. (laughs) Disappearals. Outages? Outages. There, that's much better. Outages. Uh, It's nice when you write, because you can erase um anyway uh <laughs> Guriel and Benintendi I think are similar cases um they both have pretty good uh, plate approaches they both uh you know don't chase too much I mean Guriel has that chase in his history but he makes a lot of contact takes some walks I think Benintendi's plate approach is a little better than Guriel's frankly and then the park much better uh I'm I, I take Chicago uh, I take that the cell over over uh What's the Arizona one called? Uh, Chase Field. Chase Field, any day. So, and then Benatendi even talking about trying to unlock that power. I'm going to take Benatendi over Guriel for sure. All right. So, you like Benatendi in this range. We talked about Conforto a little bit when he signed with the Giants. He stands out to us as probably more of a, a potential max volume player, health permitting for the Giants since they mix and match. Uh, at so many other places. Uh, Gavin Lux goes in this range. We're going to save him for one of the middle infield previews because he's second base and outfield eligible now. Could become shortstop eligible again over the course of the season. Uh, but we have these other guys, Brian De La Cruz, Christopher Morell. Tough players to figure out because like some of the guys we talked about at the beginning of the episode, the playing time could evaporate if they don't take advantage of the opportunity they have right now. Morell's a few years younger, got to the big leagues a little quicker than some people might have expected just based on the upper level production in the minor leagues. But I'm curious if anything you've seen in their profiles makes you want to have them on your rosters this year, maybe as your fifth outfielder. When I think when I'm shopping for a fifth outfielder, the one this is the one argument I can make for Story Ruiz. And I'm seeing the Story Ruiz and NSC at 236. So he's actually uh, more in this crew mm-hmm. of... Uh, of outfielders, Brian De La Cruz, Esturi Ruiz, um, and uh, who are you saying? Christopher Morrell. Uh, I might take them as my fifth and sixth outfielders. I, I kind of like them because I'm just sh- shopping for upside. And if they don't have the playing time or if they're scuffling, they're not, they're not very likely to stay on my roster all year. And I think the difference between them uh, you know, I like uh, them and like a Jock Peterson um, is that they could establish themselves as playing every day. Their 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 upside is higher than a Jock Peterson, 
Um, and uh, that's what I think I'm looking for more there, especially since they steal bases. I feel like a Jock Peterson type is just going to be available on the wire. You know, Seth Brown, Jock Peterson. There's like always a guy who pops, uh, you know, for not great batting average, some homers, and not playing every day. Kind of like these lefty platoon types, right? Um, I, I think those guys you can find any given year. A guy who could be playing in center field and could hit, you know, 15 homers and steal 40 bags like Ruiz, like, okay. I can talk myself into that and talk, and then have some sort of action plan for when am I, how am I going to cut him? When am I going to cut him? Is he actually the guy I pick as my fifth outfielder and I'm going to pick somebody boring after him? Um, let me see if I can identify that. Jesse Winker, Austin Hayes, um, you know, Austin Meadows, you know, Lane Thomas, even I just called him boring. So if I, if I, if I could, I could take Ruiz as my fifth outfielder and then take someone boring behind him. And and actually, for the first couple of weeks, put the boring guy in and push Ruiz down to the bench. I've done this sort of thing in uh, in in AL only leagues, where you actually spend money on a prospect, hoping he gets sent down, you know, and then you can put him on your bench, and then you can put somebody boring that you took in the reserve rounds into into your roster. Uh, sometimes you have to do that because the exciting upside guys will cost a little bit more. So that's that's the only argument I can make for Ruiz. As much as I don't like him, he obviously has more upside than Jock Peterson, who goes in the same range. You know, he obviously has more upside than uh, you know Austin Hayes and Jesse Winker. Uh, but I but I could see pairing them. Um, uh, so Brian De La Cruz, I like. Uh, you know, from a batted ball standpoint, the uh, hit tool is is decent, um, and I think you know I think they're going to need him in terms of. Who can play center? Uh, he played enough uh, center last year, just one game more than he played in right. Um, and it was pretty much 30-30-30, the center right and left. Um, but at the same time, next year, who do you want playing center field for you in Miami? Uh, I, think, I think it's Brian uh, De La Cruz. Yeah, it's De La Cruz ahead of J.J. Blade. They played him Blade out there more than I would have expected. Their outfield is really gross i mean avisail garcia is a dh along with jorge soler for me because the roots are so bad um so they have two dhs that are currently atop the left and right field thing so i kind of want to have an okay uh center field defense so and, and given that soler or garcia should really be playing dh um i, I feel like de la cruz's playing time is fairly safe given that he's an, an, an okay defender. He's a capable defender, you know? So uh, I think he'll play somewhere, and I think he'll be a slightly above league average bat. Um, might be better to have him as your sixth outfielder so that you can play him away from home. I don't know what his actual splits were. Don't tell me what his actual splits were. I'm not even going to look at them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what his actual splits were. Don't tell me he had better at home. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's a terrible park. I would rather play him on the field, on the, on the road. So the, the Morel playing time situation, I think, is a little bit tougher to buy into right now because the Dansby Swanson addition pushes Nico Horner back to second base. Nick Madrigal is a utility guy now. He's not your DH. You could end up with some kind of Hosmer-Mervis first base DH combo where they just rotate those two spots and, and they hold all that playing time. And then it kind of comes down to Morel maybe at third over Patrick Wisdom. It just kind of looks like he's a super utility guy because with Hap and Bellinger and Suzuki in the outfield, those guys aren't going to get a lot of days off. Maybe it's Bellinger against lefties, and that's Morel in center field for those spots. Then he picks someone else to alternate playing time with elsewhere in the lineup. But I just think compared to De La Cruz, it's a little harder to see how Morel gets to a full-time role this year. He played all over. 57 games in center. 33 at second, 18 at third, 13 at short, two at DH, one in left field. I, you know, he also kind of profiles that way with the bat, maybe an 8% walk rate, 32% strikeout rate, 18% swinging strike rate is really big. Strikes. Yeah. The, the batted ball quality was good. 13% barrel rate, 113 max EV. The athleticism is good. He runs the base as well. Uh, he was an asset on the base pass. Uh, he 
he was an asset as a player, almost a two-win player in two-thirds of a season. So basically a league average player. This is a team that needs league average players. I tend to think he'll win the battle at third because Patrick Wisdom is a right-hander who last year was... 147 he was 47 percent better than league average against lefties and 11 percent worse than league average against righties i know that's a one-year platoon split but this is a guy who has a lot of swing and miss he's a righty he's 31 he's not part of the future in uh in that league uh, in that team he was only four percent better than league average across the board he is not a good defender and so this is uh, my argument for Patrick Wisdom as basically splitting time with Eric Hosmer as the DH, Mervis as the first baseman, Morrell as the third baseman, and maybe some sort of uh, a fight between Morrell, Horner, and Madrigal uh, for a start, because I think Horner has the, the arm for third. Madrigal doesn't, but you could see a Horner, Swanson, Madrigal infield uh, that wouldn't have much power. So that's why I tend to think Morrell is the third baseman and Madrigal is the new utility guy. Um, and he's he would be a great utility guy, I think, except for the fact that his arm is a bit of a noodle. So maybe the arm will matter. You know, maybe the arm, maybe Morrell's arm will make him the utility guy in a weird way. Um, but, uh, that's, that's actually where I see the battle is between Morrell, Horner and Madrigal. You mentioned Jock Peterson just a moment ago. I think on the leaderboard of outfielders we discussed on part two and part three, third in barrel rate last year. And I think the, the limiting factor for Jock Peterson is the way in which the giants are going to use him. I don't think he has the same path as Mitch Hanniger and Michael Conforto to play a lot more than he did last year. 433 plate appearances last season. We've seen Jock go over 500 once since 2016. So usually the high 400s is the most you're going to get. He's optimally used, so you get a better batting average and a better OBP and probably better Much better in stats. daily leagues. Like He's a much mm-hmm. more asset in daily leagues than weekly leagues. In weekly leagues... 433 PAs, even though he didn't miss that much time, you know, 433 PAs and 134 games is a weird combo. It's like, oh, he got subbed out. He, you know, he played four or five games a week. That's just really hard to put into your roster. It's okay to have as a bench guy, especially if you've got a weekend and you say, oh, there's a weekend. I'm going to put him in on the weekend. But do you need to roster him all the time? There are going to be other guys you could stream that could do that. And another thing that comes up with Jock Peterson is he played 102 games in left field. I don't think he should ever play left field again. <laughs> uh, I like I don't know. It's a it's a bit of a blip because this guy used to play center. He also used to look different. His body was different, and now he looks like Les Schlemiel uh, out there. And, uh, like there was enough where like beat reporters were asking, you know, around about his body, you know, like this, I don't mean to body shame people, but this is we're we are here to appraise athletes and he did not look like an athlete. He just looked, yeah, he looked different. He just looked a lot different than when he broke into the league. Plenty of players change over time. This isn't right. Like a, so a he Jack looks Peterson more like a DH only, yeah. now is my point. And he hasn't been DHing for a really long time in his career. Um, and so he's going to go from one year of 120 games played in left field to next year. That's going to, or 102, that's going to flip completely. He's going to play 102 games at DH and 14 games in left field. If, if Mitch Hanniger and, and Michael Conforto are healthy. And so uh, that actually is meaningful for what he does at the plate. Because uh, there is something called the DH penalty, the pinch hitting penalty. Any player is about 10% worse than you'd expect them to be uh, if they are coming off uh, the bench. And I even talked at length to J.D. Davis about it. It's in one of my uh, columns called Caught Looking Columns. And J.D. Davis talks about how he has to ride the bike uh, to stay warm, right? Because he's not on the field. Well, when he's riding the bike, he's not actually looking at the field in the same lights. He's in the dark tunnel or something, right? So he rides the bike and he comes out and he's like, wow, it's so bright or whatever, right? So these are these weird little things that make it hard to DH where, or, or, okay, I won't ride the bike. I'll stay out here and stay engaged in the game. Well, then I'm cold. You know what I mean? So there's like, oh, should I go take some swings downstairs? Well, then I'm downstairs. I have no idea what's going on in the game. 
So, you know, every DH has to get used to it. I don't think that Jock has necessarily gotten used to it yet. Maybe he can roll. He does look like he rolls out of bed uh, to hit. <laughs> so maybe he can just roll out of bed uh, and be 20% better than league average with the bat and be an asset in daily leagues. But I don't think I want to have a lot of uh, Jock Peterson shares in an NFBC or weekly format because... I w- like every week I'll be like, do I play him? I don't know. There's like one lefty. Is he going to, is he miss, if he misses one game and uh, against a righty and does sits against the lefty, then I shouldn't play him this week. Yeah. I'm with you. I think in a weekly league where you set the lineup one time, maybe I'd actually be more likely to have him there. Cause I think it's a headache to have a player like this with the weekend swap where you're, you can, yeah, you can play the matchups, but that, that burns a roster spot. You have to plan for that, and I like to use rosters a bit differently. I like to have more positional flexibility than what Jock Peterson currently offers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's play a game called Good Oatmeal, Bad Oatmeal, because this is very appropriate for this range of the draft board. Good Oatmeal being like a nice uh, bowl of of steel cutouts where you've got the the fruits that you want on there, maybe some nuts, a little dusting of brown sugar. Bad Oatmeal being more like something that would come out of a nacho cheese-style dispenser at a continental breakfast at a hotel that you really don't want to stay at because, I don't know, maybe you're at a soccer tournament in the middle of nowhere, just to give you a really idea of what Bad Oatmeal is to me. Randall Gritchick, good oatmeal or bad oatmeal with what looks like another clear run of playing time in Colorado? Uh, good in that I would love to uh, play him half the time, you know, and, and fewer uh, matchups against the Dodgers and fewer games in San Francisco uh, with the new schedule. If, but if, if we... I mean, have, I know he's boring. If we have Jock Peterson problems because of the lefty-righty... And he's a usage, and we have Gritchick is for home park, road park. I think I'd be out on Gritchick too. Then in in those formats, it'd be more like a daily but league it's sort of thing. Just much more obvious. You know, you don't even have to go look at a schedule and and and, and plan out all the starting pitchers. <laughs> is he in Colorado? Is he not in Colorado? And you know, I I gave a spe- a, a talk about the balanced schedule being a big deal this year, and um, our friend Kevin Hastings. Uh, listener and uh, friend out in Hawaii uh, w- uh, mentioned that he looked through it and he found a way uh, that you could roster a player from Colorado every week. Uh, that there weren't any weeks where they were completely away from home. So with that's an NFBC format where you're like, you have the weekend and so. So that's a weekly lineup situation where it looks like he's going to be useful every week, either in the meaty part of the portion or the weekend. Um, and uh, and so if I can play him either the first half or the second half or every week, then I, I, he has a place on my roster. It just seems easier than like Jock Peterson, who you're playing around with home is not great for power. And then righty lefty stuff where you have to kind of look at the schedule and and what happens if a pitcher sits down and the whole and the whole you know what I mean like they they move everybody up or you know what I mean like pitching rotations are not set in stone as much as they're playing in Colorado on Friday you know what I mean like they're they're not gonna not play they'll be like oh today we're just gonna play in San Francisco instead of Colorado (laughs) sure you don't have to worry about that but you're getting better core skills from Peterson so I Mm. I think they're actually really similar they just create their roster problem in a different way. I think if I had to roster one, I'd actually take Jock over Gritchick. I understand that Gritchick is the uh, the easier player to roster because you do 
I think more clearly know when exactly he should be in the lineup. Will Myers, good oatmeal or bad oatmeal with the move to Cincinnati? Good. I uh, just filed a piece uh, for uh, with Trent Rosecrans uh, for The Athletic about the 80th percentile outcomes uh, for the Reds and their players. Um, his is, is, is fairly exciting. Um, I, at 32, I think he's still sort of within reach of a bounce back kind of good season. He's well motivated. It's a great park to fit for his power. And I think the Reds uh, will play him nearly every day to start the season uh, as they want to be like, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to be good. Uh, and then even as they get bad, they're motivated to play him every day to trade him. So uh, I see him as pretty clearly above the sort of TJ Friedel, Stuart Fairchild, Jake Fraley, Mike Ciani, Nick Solak, hodgepodge uh, that will uh, play behind Nick Senzel in center and left. Uh, so I think Myers is, you know, when you look at the Giants thing and you say, oh, I think Conforto and Hanniger play every day because the rest of this roster is so you know, sort of mix and match and upheaval. That's how I see uh, when I look at uh, Cincinnati, I'm like, they're going to play Jonathan India, Spencer Steer and Will Myers every day. And that's how I see it. Oh, I'm with you. I think this is good oatmeal. I think Will Myers yeah. is probably the biggest park factors winner among hitters. When you look at the difference for right-handed well, power at Petco versus great American ballpark. There's another one uh, that comes right behind him in Jesse Winker. Uh, he's, I think he has a similar, uh, sort of, uh, situation there. Winker, uh, showed up in the top 10, uh, in terms of batters who swing at strikes and don't swing at balls. If you kind of combine those, uh, skills, he did that last year, despite having, uh, a terrible, uh, health year. I, there's a couple things there that, that are interesting. Jeff Zimmerman had a piece about the change in age adjusted OPS. Um, if you, depending on what body part you were on the OP on the DL for on the IL for it's a little bit old 2014, but number one is elbow. So uh, if you were, uh, you had elbow surgery and you were coming back, this is bad news for Trevor story. As an example, uh, it's minus uh, 56 points in OPS compared to what uh, you would be projected for. Hmm. So that's a bad one. Second on the list, surprisingly is the neck 30 oh. points in OPS. That is what Jesse Winker just had surgery on. Um, and so that's a little bit dis uh, disconcerting. Another part is there's some reporting coming out of there, uh, out of Seattle with uh, by Divish, uh, Ryan Divish, the, the beat reporter there, saying that uh, he didn't want to like lift with teammates. He didn't really participate. Um, and But I can, uh, I can pair that with some of my own reporting because I talked to Jesse late in the season. And I've been talking to him for a long time. And, um, you know, what I got from him was just I'm hurt and I'm trying to help the team. But I know it looks terrible and no one seems to like me. And, like, you know what I mean? He's a guy who just came into a new situation. He's supposed to be good. He's supposed to, and then he wasn't. And then they've got all they all these Mariners have all these like young players that sort of came up together, right? So it was it, like Cal Raleigh, Julio Rodriguez, all these guys. They they're gonna like each other, and they're gonna be like, oh, man, who's this? Who's this stupid veteran they brought in who's terrible?" And you know, and then if you're hurt, you're just trying to like do something about the hurt and just trying to you know, and and before the surgery in late in the season, I said, when I look at the numbers, it looks like you're hurt. And he's like, well, I don't want to like give that an excuse and please don't go on the record with this, but like, I am hurt. And I was like, oh, so you're going to get that right in the offseason? He's like, yeah, I'm going to get that right. And he said there were some mechanical things that he wants to get better. So I don't know. I don't know. If he's hurt all last season, that's going to affect all the numbers. It's going to affect the projections. And, and, and now he's supposedly right, I guess. Well, it's a, it's a risky one, but I, 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 I like the risk-reward proposition at this, at this point in the draft. Yeah, we talked about taking a few shots on injured players, and when you're talking about someone going after pick 250, that's an easy cut if you don't like what you see early on. I think even with the injury, a 7.6% barrel rate last year, which was way down for him, is still better than it was from 2017 to 2019 when the problem was he's got a good hit tool but he doesn't hit for power. So with health, I mean, the projections actually make 
an adjustment almost I, I don't think it's because of, of what you were talking about with, with Jeff's research necessarily with this specific injury but the projections don't put him all the way back to that you know low 800s even 900 OPS range they have him in the high 700s they've got high teens powers top power in less than a full season that's a very conservative projection if he's healthy he's another big park factors winner too so he's been one of those dinged up players that I'm looking at as a good rebound target for this year. I liked him even if he stayed in Seattle, not knowing the teammate situation maybe wasn't great. That he's in Milwaukee, this boosts Park situation a lot. He can be the primary DH there and could be a big part of that offense, maybe getting a little bit better. Going back to seeing pitchers he used to see too. I mean, if they, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of familiarity, the Parks he used to know. So, Yeah. Austin Hayes is a little bit young to be oatmeal, but I think that's the kind of player he's he's shaping up to be. We thought maybe in 2021 when that barrel rate spiked that we were getting the exciting young player that Hayes was as a prospect. Instead, he just looks like, looks like more of a, a steady contributor. It is important to remember the changes in Baltimore were significant on players' power output, but the underlying numbers, the swing decisions, the barrel rates, those things still look a lot like they did pre-2021 for Hayes. So I think we're going to look back at 2021 and say that level of power when he was on kind of like a 25 to 30 home run sort of pace over a full, full season, that's probably a level we're not going to see from him again, even if he ends up playing somewhere else down the road. It is interesting to think that we could be looking at some other guys in small samples and say, oh, 9% bail rate, 110 max EV, like that's pretty solid. Um, and yet it might be their one outlier year. So, you know, that's why regression is important. That's why projections are important. Um, but, uh, there is also a little softness about that, like a 11, 12% barrel rate. That's like top of the league, you know, uh, 115 and 114, uh, max EV. That's more top of the league. Even in that good year in 2021, 9% barrel rate, 110 max EV. That's, that's good rather than great. So, um, you know, not too surprising given his past numbers that he regressed a little bit there. Maybe he could take a step forward, but he's 27. So, you know, if he does have another good year, it could be his peak year. If he does have another good year, you're in a keeper league, I would sell him uh, because I think he's established that he's good, not great. Five to six, five to seven percent better than the league average of the bat. Uh, 20 homers at most, 250 average, you know, 310 OBP at most. So, Pretty good player, but you know I also don't know that uh, you know he would play center field for anybody. So when you're that's this is the kind of player that just honestly is kind of fungible in the game, uh, where he'll get one year deals and and stuff like that on the way out. You know, yeah. If he gets an opportunity to play center field and really like shows that he can be above average there. That changes a lot for his long-term outlook. But with Mullins in Baltimore, he's not really going to get that opportunity anytime soon. And as he ages, it's going to be less likely. Because of it, yeah. Like if maybe somebody else thinks they could play center for them. Brandon Marsh kind of goes in this range. I'm taking the oatmeal tag down off of YouTube. I think we saw a few interesting adjustments from Marsh late in the year after that trade to Philadelphia. I think there were always things in the profile that we liked. Good bit of swing and miss, but a a guy that has certainly taken his share of walks everywhere he's been. Uh, Even as he's tried to adjust to big league pitching, the walk rate hasn't been terrible, even though it's been down from where it was throughout his time in the minors. But I mean, he kind of became more aggressive in Philadelphia, right? The walk rate went down there and it helped his strikeout rate. He sort of, you know, aggress his way out of any sort of called strike threes, you know? Right. Is this a better version of Brandon Marsh in the long run? Is this more sustainable for him as a, a hitter? I've had, uh, I have had some shares. He was on my, uh, you know, record setting AL labor squad last year. And he did what I'd hoped he would do is double digit homers and double digit steals. And he played 461 plate appearances. He's in line to be the starting center fielder for the Phillies next year. I think he's going to play all year. I think though, that he's a deep leaguer, uh, a guy who will do double digit homers and steals again. I just don't see that next level. I don't, I don't think he's a great 15 teamer. Hmm. So you do not want him as your outfielder number five. Well, like you're like, oh, he took a step forward with contact rate and and with strikeout rate with Philly. Well, it was still thirty percent, you know. And it, now instead of being paired with a seven percent walk rate, it was paired with a four percent walk rate. So it's like, 
okay, you know, all in all, yes, he was a little better with with uh, Phillies, but how much of that was Babbitt? He had a 340 Babbitt in, in Anaheim and a 398 in Philadelphia. Otherwise, you know, a few a fewer strikeouts, more and fewer walks, a little bit more power, not really supported by barrel rate. I don't know. I, I see someone who's too aggressive and doesn't really have a, a great hit tool. So I think even if this is all we have for Brandon Marsh for skills, if he doesn't get any better, which is very possible, but at the same time, we've only seen 700 plate appearances in the big leagues, and the first 200 or so came off of shoulder surgery when he was debuting with the Angels in 2021. True. The Phillies need him in center field. Trading Veerling away, traded away one of their best alternatives to play that spot. They've got nobody else. So because of his glove, even if he's stuck in the bottom third of that lineup all year, which he might be stuck in the bottom third of the lineup, even if he gets a little better as a hitter, he's going to play because of his glove. The the sprint speed's good. He's going to steal some bases. There's just legit batting average risk. But if you told me Brandon Marsh is going to match the production of Harrison Bader, who goes uh, 100 Mm -hmm. picks earlier, I'd say, (laughs) yeah, I guess that's possible. He's a good yeah. reason to not take Bader where Bader goes. The The key difference for me is I think Bader getting that park boost is possibly a path to more power. But I, I actually think well, I like know, Marsh almost as much. Too. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, think, I think I'm talking myself out of Bader and into Brent Marsh right now as a, kind of a fallback option. I think I would play him as an outfield five option in a 15 team. Because like, cheap speed from guys that aren't going to lose their job is actually a nice little thing to find as late uh, as he yeah, goes. Yeah, and some of the some of the like I do like some of the veterans here a lot more uh than some of the young guys um in that, you know, I I've already said I liked Will Myers, um you know, there was I forget who else uh that we that I've said I've liked uh so far and then be, after Marsh I, I I think Austin Meadows is is due for a bounce back um and uh you know, there's there's other uh, kind of some veterans down here that even Charlie Blackman, there's a that's a plus hit tool in Colorado. You know, like seems seems useful. Um, none of them are going to steal bases. None of the veterans. No, so most of those guys don't run. If you're looking for that, um, how about uh, how about Garrett Mitchell instead of uh, instead of your man Brandon Marsh? I would take Marsh. The Brewers have more competition for Mitchell if he falters, and I think there's still enough swing and miss in Mitchell's game where you're it's not actually fairly similar. <laughs> They're very similar profiles, <laughs> yeah. but I'd rather I'd rather take the guy that's been in the big leagues a little bit longer because at least uh, we know he hasn't fallen on his face, and Mitchell could fall on his face, go down, come back, and then ways. Where it's like, you want the guy who's been in the big leagues longer. Well, we have more of a track record that says maybe he's not good. With Mitchell, they could go either way, right? Like, he could have a 22%, 24% strikeout rate next year. You know? He could. I, I, well, look, Whereas I'm, we're uh, pretty sure that Marsh is going to have a 30% strikeout rate next year. I actually wouldn't be opposed to having both players on the roster. If Marsh is my last outfielder and Mitchell's my first one off the bench. and yeah, That's two bites at the same apple. Yeah, Two guys that like have that. similar functions. Good defensive value, speed, a little bit of power, developing well, maybe skills. Maybe one of them is one of them is good enough. Yeah, the other guy that goes in this range for speed purposes is Jose Siri. Defense might oh, get him a lot he's... of playing time. Uh, yeah, but big like, flaws. I like if 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 there's three of these if these are the three guys we're comparing. Like I just don't see like he had thirty he had a thirty five percent strikeout rate in AAA one year. He's had thirty percent strikeout rates in AA and AAA. Like there's no like I don't think there's any way that he has below a thirty percent strikeout rate, and that's what I want out of one of these three guys. So if I'm gonna roster two of these three guys, then I want one of them to to sneak underneath, even at twenty eight or twenty seven. Like you know, and I have I just don't think uh, that Siri's gonna do it. I mean, he has he has decent batted ball stats, and I think they do need to play him in center, like you're saying. And the projection on Siri is pretty nice, even the bat. Like they're both saying, like thirteen uh, steamer says seventeen homers and twenty stolen bases. It's just an awful, awful batting average. If you get your batting average up all game all year, maybe maybe series your pick. But I would rather take Marsh and Mitchell just because I think there's a chance they don't hit two ten. Look at the difference between steamer and the bat on the average. Steamer two thirty nine, the bat X two thirteen, and the bat has two ten. That's Wow, that's a 
big spread I believe on that batting average. <laughs> Extra Ks from uh, from the bat and the bat X too, big part of that difference. Seventeen point five percent swing strike right now. I mean, that's it was Marsh was eighteen. Yeah, and and Garrett Mitchell was twelve. No, Marsh is thirteen. So yeah, 18 percent swing strike rate is a big one. That's a big number. All right, we got time for a couple of late, late darts. Outfielders beyond pick 300 that you actually like. A couple of names we talked about earlier. Jared Kelnick now going in this range. We've got uh, Dylan Carlson going in this range. Trent Grisham, who I like going to last year. He's way down here after a disappointing 2022. Jake Fraley, who might play a ton in Cincinnati, has that power-speed combo. I think he's pretty interesting in this range, but... It could be any of those guys, guys going even later, prospects. Who who are your late outfield darts right now? I'm going to go plate approach, guys, where I like the plate approach. And uh, Trent Grisham, I think, you know, just a little bit of aggression would serve him well. He had some uh, months last year where he was useful. Um, I know that they're thinking about trading. You know, he's been uh, rumored to be traded, but I also think that that team probably uh needs him in center i don't know trent uh, you know the tatis coming back makes things interesting i don't think hasong kim can play center but i think uh tatis can play center so i guess there's some issue there but you know he steals bases i like his plate approach generally um then also uh down here i see uh who was it now uh max kepler uh, you know, I think he'll be a huge beneficiary of the shift rules. Um, and uh, if that batting average ticks north at all, he becomes so much more playable. So Max Kepler is a guy. And then a, a little bit of a, a long shot, but a lovely kind of guy to have on your bench to see if anything has changed um, is uh, Dylan Carlson. We've spent a lot of time uh, speaking about the bad things that Dylan Carlson does on this podcast and how, uh, you know, I've made some some comparisons where he looks uh, really bad in terms of barrel rates and stuff. Uh, his bad ball stats are not good. However, Nolan Arnato is his teammate. Nolan Arnato uh, spent the last two off seasons, uh, this one and the last one, at driveline doing, or, or, you know, partially a driveline, partially in his own spot, doing whatever he can to up his bat speed. And if you give Dylan Carlson bat speed, I think everything changes. Lars Newtbar is his teammate. Lars Newtbar went to driveline and upped his bat speed with uh, over and underload bat, you know, weighted bats. Uh, so, you know, if Dylan Carlson, I haven't heard that about Dylan Carlson this offseason, but you've got two very high profile teammates who are like one is an MVP and the other is surpassing you on the depth chart. I think you would take notice in what they're doing. And if you gave Dylan Carlson plus bat speed, he could actually be better than Newt Barr, you know, or at least be similar in that he makes a lot of contact, has a good sense of the zone, you know, has a good all fields approach. Uh, and, you know, all these things would be so much better if he just had bat speed. So, uh, you know, I'm willing to take Dylan Carlson and get the early uh, EV, you know, barrel rate numbers uh, and make a decision on him quickly. Yeah, I still like the chances of Carlson being a good fantasy player. Um, I like Alex Kirilov a lot in this range as well. I, I just think there's a ton of raw power there. Wrist injuries have slowed him down. We saw really good numbers from him at AAA the brief time he was healthy last year. The numbers in the big leagues were still... A little underwhelming, but he hasn't even had 400 big league plate appearances yet. I think you're talking about an easy 20 home run sort of bat and a guy that actually controls the zone just well enough to maybe be uh, someone that doesn't hurt you in OBP leagues. On the surface, it looks like he kind of hurts you in that category. So probably a little underrated because of all the injuries. And I think that's a big part of why he was hitting the ball on the ground so much last year, too. I don't think he's a 55% true talent ground ball rate guy. I think he's going to be someone that lifts the ball consistently and is rewarded for doing that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's a wrist surgery, and uh, the like I said, wrist was uh, third behind elbow and neck uh, in adjusted uh, change in OPS. However, it's such a wrist thing for him for so long for Kirilov that maybe just getting it right is just all he needs. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's it's been it was really something that bothered him all year. 
Um, there's a couple names uh, later on. Tommy Pham, you know, I think it's just something where we just need to know where he lands. You know, there there are still a few situations where he could land. You could be like, oh, there's some decent playing time there. Um, so I want to know where he lands. Oscar Colas, it's funny. If Pham ended up in, in Chicago, uh, I would say that Pham might play every day and Colas, you know, starts the year in the minor leagues again. If Pham doesn't end up in Chicago, I think Colas could play, it could start in the outfield all year for them <laughs> so yeah. as it stands now oscar colas is a good shot in the dark he's 24 uh you know his minor league numbers may look really exciting but he's been pretty old for those levels um and you know it, it, it's because of his backstory it's not that they kept him in the minor league levels because he wasn't good or whatever it's because he's cuban and he played in japan and you know what i mean like it's they just they moved him as aggressively as they could and he was good at every level uh but he was also it's no fault of his own he was old so um you know i do think it's interesting to see here's a huge spread between a 230 average from the bat you know, 11 or 12 homers to a 260 average uh, and 16 or 17 homers from Steamer. But that describes the range of outcomes for him. And if he's more the latter than the former, then he's going to start every day and be like, honestly, could be like a rookie of the year candidate. Why not? You know, he's going to be he might hit the ground running at 24 with the, you know all this history, left hander, shift rules, opportunity. It all lines up. So. Uh, I don't want to say that I think Colas is, uh, you know, one of the top prospects in baseball, but everything lines up for him to be a good first-year candidate in fantasy. Basically, just has to outperform Gavin Sheets for an everyday opportunity right now. That doesn't seem like a bar that's too high to clear. So I'm with you. I once think you, Colas once is Once you good. consider defense, too, you know, like Sheets has good batted ball quality, but like, you know, could end up uh, in a platoon at first and, and DH where, uh, you know, I think his defensive uh, abilities line up better. So that's going to mark the end of our outfield preview. This is the end of part three. There is no part four. I know there's some more names that we could get to. We'll probably answer mailbag questions. Alec about Thomas, outfielders. 406. That's nice value. Nice. <laughs> it's real Tyrone nice. Tyrone Taylor, 411. Eh, a little, I'm a little less excited about Tyrone Taylor, but I'm, I'm, I'm in on Alec Thomas. It makes sense. Given what we said about Jake McCarthy. 431. Oh, you're you're never going to give up that dream, are you? (laughs) Anyway, this is a good place to go shopping for your final pick in the draft. Uh, They're going to be, there's going to be much more interesting outfielders. That's why I always want to be kind of conservative at every level of the outfield when I'm picking, because I just want to make sure that, you know, I know that there's going to be, uh, two potential bench bats that I'll in, that I'll that I'll like that I'll want to put on my team in the outfield. So I always try to make sure that like I am getting representative guys in every tier, but I sort of leave it open where I could take maybe even three guys to for me my fifth outfielder and 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 see which one works out. Yeah, yeah I love throwing darts in this range because you can see a lot of what could go right type players on the board. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Get a subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash Rates and Barrels. We are back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.